Hello and welcome to a bumper episode of the Web3 Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Callum Woodcock. And this is a very special episode covering the demise of FTX, crypto's so-called layman brothers moment. Now, Sam Bankman-Fried, FTX's founder and CEO, has just today, on the 13th of December 2022, been arrested on the request of US authorities. But at the time we recorded this podcast, this was still an unknown. This episode instead explores the reasons why FTX collapsed and asks the question as to whether this was a fraud after all. On with the show. I'm delighted to welcome Neil and Paddy back to the show. Neil and Paddy shone, if I may say so myself, on season three, episode 10, and have come on the pod once again to deep dive into what can only be called the biggest debacle in the history of crypto, which is saying something, which is, of course, FTX's collapse. Neil, Paddy, welcome back to the Web3 podcast. Thank you, Karen. Sean, I'm honoured. We're on. <laughs> so, the world's second or third largest crypto exchange, FTX, as we all know, has recently declared bankruptcy with, I guess we could call it a financial hole, probably in the region of somewhere around between 10 to, to 12 billion. It's left over a million customers and investors out of pocket. It's led to a further collapse in the price of crypto assets and caused a chain reaction of contagion. So the BlockFi bankruptcy, Genesis, DCG are in trouble and general market panic. Crypto has been declared dead once again. And the most interesting thing is that the whole collapse seemed to take place within a one to two week period in public over Twitter. Neil, Paddy... My first question for you is, what the hell happened? <laughs> um, that's a great question. Uh, so uh, you're, you're right. I think it did seem to play out over, or at least the kind of final demise uh, seemed to play out over a kind of one to two week period. Um, however, I'm not quite sure that's the whole story. So uh, I think in, in this context, I kind of go back to um, a fairly famous Hemingway quote, I think it's from The Sun Also Rises. So he, one character says to the other, well, how did you go bankrupt? Uh, and the other character responds, well, in two ways, gradually and then suddenly. Uh, and definitely we saw the suddenly in the one to two week period at the back end of October into the, the first part of November. But I think this is a, a story that kind of plays out over a much longer timeline. Um, so I think what we should probably do, if you're comfortable with it, is let's start with the suddenly bit and we'll kind of read from beginning of November and then we can kind of talk about some of the, the back history and the stuff that leads up to this because I think it, it's probably a story that's been playing out unbeknownst to us for, um, you know, for, for probably a long period, maybe maybe even years. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I guess, um, yeah, I, if you can if you can kind of shine a light on that, that would be fantastic. I will do my best. It's a uh, it's a murky a murky world. Um, so probably the first thing to do is just to kind of lay out some of the key characters, and and probably the most key character I guess in this is uh, a chap called Sam Bankman-Fried, who's a sort of thirty-year-old, semi-mythologized chap that's appeared on the you know the covers of Forbes and Fortune, this kind of wunderkind of uh, of crypto or trading. SBF. Um, SBF, yeah, he goes by the initials SBF. Um, at his peak, I guess somewhere around the, the end of uh, of October, he was reportedly worth around 
26 billion dollars uh and he's really central to the story he uh was the kind of controlling or had controlling uh ownership in a conglomerate of companies that included the the exchange ftx uh, in both its kind of international and u.s guises he owned about 53 percent of, of that company uh and he he also owned 90 percent of a company called alameda research that's also quite critical to this to this story so, you know, we'll kind of start with SBF, who's kind of critical to this this whole piece. So uh, SBF is, um, has kind of taken it upon himself to, to kind of spearhead um, the discussions, particularly in, in Washington, D.C., around kind of crypto regulation. Uh, he's a kind of self-appointed uh, spokesperson for the industry, certainly wasn't appointed by anybody within the industry. And, and in particular, he's been in Washington for a while, kind of talking with... Um, uh, congressmen, senators, and, and the CFTC, the Commodities Future Trading Commission, uh, about a, an upcoming potential act called the DCCPA, which stands for Digital Commodities Consumer Protection Act. The reason why this is important is because lots of people from the crypto industry have been involved in those discussions. Are fairly clear that the way, the direction in which SBF was trying to take those conversations and to kind of create this legislation um, was perceived as being a direct threat to some key parts of the, the crypto Web3 industry, and in particular DeFi. And it seemed as though uh, what SBF was trying to do was to kind of lobby uh, regulators and, and lo lobby lawmakers to shape a level of regulation that was favorable to his company versus their potentially overseas competitors, people like Binance, uh, and also competitors on the, the decentralized um, area of the, of the spectrum. That all kind of came to a head, I guess, over over Twitter, and and SBF decided then to kind of publish his own thoughts on crypto regulation. And once he'd done that, it was fairly clear that either he didn't have a great understanding of how DeFi worked, or was uh, being kind of deliberately opaque and and kind of you know deliberately trying to shape a a, a level of regulation that would impact the the mm. DeFi industry. Um, and that then basically led to a, a debate between himself and a chap called Eric Voorhees uh, on the, the Bankless pod on, on October the 29th. And basically that, that debate was all about, you know, how, do, how should we regulate crypto? How should we regulate DeFi? Eric Voorhees, for context, is a, is a kind of crypto OG. He's been in this space for well over a decade. Uh, he's created exchanges himself, uh, but much more on the kind of decentralized, non-KYC, non-custodial end of the uh, end of the market. And I guess the, like the the summary from that debate was that SBF got absolutely trounced. It was clear <laughs> that he wasn't, you know, kind of in command of his detail. Um, but probably more worrying, I guess, was was sort of two things. One is that he came across as being basically inept. Um, you know, either he wasn't on his game, he had a lot on his mind or, you know, just didn't have the detail. Uh, and two, that, you know, he wasn't a friend to the, the, the crypto market. Yeah. Um, and as a direct result of that, um, you could start to see that reflected in kind of market price action. So uh, there's a, a, a token called FTT, which we'll, we'll absolutely return to, which is kind of like the native token of the FTX exchange. Yeah. The value of that started to slide immediately after the... Um, uh, that 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 uh, that podcast went out on the 29th so that was kind of like almost step one step two in this kind of two week suddenly period was um on november the 2nd when coindesk published an article which kind of showed um 
the, the the kind of high level holdings of Alameda Research, the kind of trading arm, which we'll, we'll return to in a moment. Um, those uh, holdings seem to be leaked from a set of financial statements or order to financial statements um, that had been done for these set of private companies, but not you know not revealed to the public as they don't have to in in, in law. Yeah. And what it showed was that the majority of Alameda's holdings were in this very liquid FTT token. Uh, and much of the rest of their holdings were in other, you know, kind of similar low cap, um, illiquid tokens. Um, and that was, I guess, quite a surprise to the market. Mm. So all was quiet for a few days. And then on November the 6th, uh, another kind of key character in this debacle, a chap called Cheng Peng Zhao, who uh, also goes by the acronym uh, CZ. I was about to say, well, well attempted. Yeah, well, thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, I was unda- undoubtedly very incorrect, but I'll call it. <laughs> I'll be all right from there. Uh, so CZ, who uh, is the CEO and founder of the Binance Exchange, the biggest exchange uh, in, in crypto land, he happened to hold a fairly significant supply of FTT, about mm. 7% of the total supply. And that was because he um, had been a, the, the earliest investor in, uh, in FTX, the exchange. And he'd basically been bought out by uh, by FTX uh, like a year and a half prior. And he'd taken like a couple of billion dollar payment in a mixture of FTT and Binance's BNB token. So he was holding a fairly significant portion of the FTT uh, supply. That gave him the opportunity to properly destabilize Alameda and, and FTX. So once I guess he learned that, uh, you know, they were particularly vulnerable to, to FTT price action, uh, he very publicly on Twitter decided to to announce that he was going to sell uh, his seven percent stake in, uh, in in the total FTT market cap, uh, and he also did it in a way uh, where he basically evoked the ghost of Terra Luna, so the mm. um, that al- algorithmic stable Ponzi scheme that that basically blew up in May and caused the crypto collapse in the May June time period. So he he was very kind of clearly saying like I'm dumping these tokens. Mm. And I'm doing it because, like, I'm equating Alameda and FTX to, you know, this this big Ponzi scheme of uh, of, of Terra Luna. Yeah. So as soon as he did that, that basically had two impacts. One is that the FTT price started to collapse. So it was kind of hovering around like the mid twenty dollar mark, uh, and that basically collapsed over a period of just about twenty four hours or so to about five dollars. Uh, and at the same time, people obviously got spooked by that price action by the tweet. And they decided if they were, you know, they held assets, whether in fear or in crypto on FTX, they decided to start withdrawing that. So effectively, there was a, you know, there was a run on the bank. Um, there were some interesting little tidbits in, in the middle of all of that. So, uh, you know, when CZ announced or CZ announced that he was he was going to sell, Caroline Ellison, who's the CEO and sometime girlfriend, uh, CEO of Alameda Research and sometime girlfriend of, of SBF, tweeted that you know she would buy all of his supply at uh, you know at twenty two dollars, which was where the kind of price was at that point. Uh, and you know from in in crypto land, that was kind of interpreted in two ways. So first thing was that it kind of harked back to a tweet that SBF had put out, um, you know, a couple of years prior about Solana, where he told somebody that he would buy, you know, all the Solana they had at, at $3 and, you know, go fuck off. Um, excuse my language. Uh, it was a direct quote. It's, okay. and, uh, it's, a podcast. Uh, it's a podcast for families, this one. Yeah, right, damn. I'm uh, 
paddle will have to jump in for me. Uh, and then, um, so, it, you know, it was intended to be kind of like that type of bullish statement. You know, we've got the reserves, sell us all your uh, your FTT. But in reality, it read to the market like the, you know, the Do Kwon of, of Terra Luna yes. fame, you know, his, his infamous kind of steady lads deploying more capital tweet before the whole thing, you know, collapsed. So mm. clearly spooked the market, FTT sold off. And people started a, a run on on FTX, uh, the, the exchange. Um, so that was kind of around November six, November seven. Uh, by that point, it was super clear that that FTX were in big trouble. And out on November the eighth, both SBF and CZ came out with um, separate tweets to say that uh, Binance or CZ were going to buy FTX, the exchange. Um, you know, which is huge news because, like, you know, th- those two guys were, you know, effectively been mortal enemies for the last last yeah. few years. Um, CZ's quote was a little bit more um, measured, uh, so he he kind of talked about Binance potentially buying FTX, but very much subject to due diligence and having a look at the uh, the FTX books. And then very quickly, the the following day, coming out saying, well, actually, no, we're pulling out of the deal. Which you know told the market that uh, FTX is in real trouble and that the hole was bigger than you know anybody had been speculating at that point, and we mm. were talking about you know multiple billion dollars at that point. So uh, I think at that point the writing was very firmly on the wall. And on yeah. November the eleventh, uh, SBF came out and uh, uh, and took um, the whole conglomerate into Chapter Eleven bankruptcy. So uh, it took from effectively back end of, of October to November the eleventh for the whole house of cards to to collapse. It's a really quick, a, a very sudden then, given the size of the uh, given the size of the the exchange itself, and obviously harks back to the kind of two thousand eight financial crisis. There's people already calling this crypto's Lehman Brothers moment. I guess I'd be curious to understand in a little bit more detail. You you brought up Caroline Ellison there, obviously the CEO of Alameda Research. But could you talk a little bit more about the relationship between, uh, not SPF and Caroline, but um, between, uh, between, yeah, please stay well clear of that for this podcast, Jesus. Um, but what the relationship between Alameda and FTX, you know, what has Alameda got to do with FTX? Yeah, no, I think that's really astute. Uh, and I think it was, was it Janet Yellen that was trying to draw those comparisons. Mm. Um, yeah, I, like I do see this, there's a lot of parallels, I think, between this and the financial crisis in, in 2008. Um, so it, it, you're right, like it, it's in order to understand this story, like you have to kind of understand Alameda Research. So just going back to absolute basics on it. So Alameda Research was SBF's first company. Uh, he owned 90% of it established it in, uh, in in late 2017. The, the research bit is a, a little misleading. Effectively, it was a, a quantitative trading firm, a market maker, uh, but the research was added, apparently, uh, an SBF has, has said this, to try and hoodwink banks to kind of, uh, you know, reduce any, any connection to the crypto world, make it easier for them to set up accounts, etc. They originally incorporated in the US and then moved to Hong Kong in, uh, yeah. in 2018, which I guess probably tells you something about, um, you know, the, their view about their activities and what type of regulatory environment they wanted to be in. Yes. But anyway, their, their initial focus was on arbitrage trading. Uh, and basically their, their edge when they first set up was to try and take advantage of higher Bitcoin prices in Japan versus the US and, and kind of work that arbitrage trade. Um, I think in, in early 2018, just after they set up, they were they were supposed to be moving around about 28 million dollars worth of uh, 
uh, of trades per day and, and they eventually kind of made somewhere around 20 yep. million dollars on that trade so you know good money but not like you know the billions that they went down with um once they kind of uh, had established themselves they started to try and become market makers yeah and that relationship with ftx probably started there where their activities were really critical to ftx when that was set up in may 2019 because they provided like a bunch of liquidity on that that new exchange yes um all of those activities that we're talking about, so, you know, the ARB trading, the market making are, are basically delta neutral, low risk activities. Um, the downside is that they require like a lot of capital and they make relatively low margins. So if you're going to be profitable in that space, you've got to be, you know, kind of operating at, at, at you know, real efficiency and real scale. And it looks like what happened is that those margins that they were making on those types of activities kind of got eroded when more sophisticated players from from the TradFi world started to enter the crypto market. So there's a, a really interesting set of tweets from a guy called Sam Trabuco, who we may talk about later on, who was the, the former co-CEO alongside Caroline Ellison um, of Alameda Research. Yes. And he starts to talk about how in the second half of 2020, they moved into much kind of riskier strategies, having started in a, a very delta neutral position. Yeah. Um, so apparently they started with uh, with yield farming and they caught the sort of second half of the the DeFi summer and you know and did quite well from that and it seems that you know kind of buoyed by that success they they took on enormous enormous leverage and started taking bigger bigger bets on like news cycle beta so you know like institutions are coming or Elon's tweeting about Doge and therefore making you know kind of big directional bets yeah. They apparently did it with like very little risk management. So some, you know, quite interesting interviews with Caroline Allison where she kind of infamously talks about, well, not believing in stop losses. And separately, it looks like, you know, Alameda were exempt from any liquidation processes on, on FTX. So, you know, they were taking these big leverage long bets, but with no real kind of protection uh, on yeah. the inside. And again, like it, it looks like they did quite well at first, but like, you know, probably all of us were doing okay. Like it was a bull market in, uh, you know, in 2020 and, and first half of, of 2021. But instead of just kind of reading that as a, you know, we've timed this quite well, it's a bull market. Yeah. They started to believe that they got superpowers. And I think that's kind of the start of their, their downfall. So I, I don't want to kind of speak ill of Caroline on this particular podcast, but have you come across the Tumblr blog that she was running where she... Have you come across this? I uh, not in. De- I, I'm aware of it, but I have not read it in detail. Apparently, she's like actually quite witty though on on the blog. Is that fair? I I guess so. It depends on your definition of witty. Sorry, Paddy. No, no, I was just laughing. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I'm intrigued. I'm intrigued. Well, she she kind of talks about how really powerful men are kind of her like her thing, um, and uh, the the title of the blog is something like fake charity shop girl. Yeah. Like it, it all comes across like a little bit hin- unhinged and kind of not the person you want to be managing, you know, hundreds of millions. Right, well, we will absolutely come back to that later on yeah. um, in, in terms of like, you know, their, uh, their fitness, I guess, for running a company on the size and scale of Alameda with, you know, the kind of systemic risk that it uh, has to the industry. But I think that that's totally unfair. Uh, sorry, totally fair. And I think it, it, it's also fair, you know, like that unhinged word, um, you know, if anybody's seen, any of SBF's recent activity on Twitter and some of you know the interviews he's been conducting, like I, and that may also be a reasonable description of uh, of him as well. Well, well, can we talk about that then in a bit more detail? So, obviously, 
once FTX filed for bankruptcy, obviously you have SBF himself tweeting really erratically and that bizarre, completely um, misreading the room action that he took by tweeting out letter by letter what happened, which I think only served to irritate people, um, to say the least. And he's kind of been conducting interviews with journalists over his kind of Twitter DMs. He has outlined, I guess, a little bit that everything, all of these mistakes were down to really poor accounting controls and and kind of, oh, you know, it's not really our fault. Uh, we made mistakes, but they're not really our mistakes. Uh, it's poor corporate governments. It's not fraud. Was this fraud or was it mismanagement? Um, I, I think it's pretty clear that it's fraud. Um, <laughs> what I, I think in order to unpick that, though, yeah. I think what we probably need to do is kind of like establish that relationship between Alameda yeah TX because you know what what Alameda I guess were doing there's a bunch of stuff in there that's you know that's dubious uh potentially uh, potentially illegal in terms of their like you know that their specific activities but them doing that as a hedge fund uh on their own that's not necessarily kind of problematic and that shouldn't have any kind of contagion effect on the FTX side right if those two things are completely separate entities and you know Alameda happened to kind of gamble away all of their um you know all of their funds so it, it's kind of worth exploring that relationship I think between Alameda and FTX and once we've done that I think it's then quite straightforward to, to kind of talk about well is this fraud or is it mismanagement or a combination of both or or whatever so um maybe even just before we do that just to kind of finish off on the Alameda piece yeah. um, like th- these guys should never have blown up like they had loads of kind of dubious activities that were ongoing that should have given them huge competitive advantage so for example like they had access to the ftx order book um they had an api key apparently that allowed for them to execute trades faster than than other users on ftx so they could front run trades yes in amassing huge amounts of tokens which we'll talk about later on uh, ahead of FTX stating that they would list them. So, you know, those tokens pump uh, pump immediately after after listing. So they had all of this stuff going on that should give them massive competitive advantage. Yeah. And they were also doing other stuff that was, you know, was pretty dubious. So, for example, they lent out $4.3 billion uh, to SBF and his inner circle. Crazy. Um, $2.3 billion went to an entity entirely controlled by him. $1 billion went to him personally. So... You know, you kind of get this picture of like a, a company that's sort of spiraling out of control. But anyway, like clearly they didn't have superpowers and clearly they started to lose money at some point. Um, there are different, differing reports about when that happened. Forbes talk about them probably having lost $3.7 billion before 2020. So like just to, to let that sink in, that's losing $3.7 billion betting long in a bull market, which feels pretty difficult to do. Mm. Uh, but it, it, it seems as though they were, the Alameda component was insolvent, uh, at least at the point at which Terra Luna imploded in, in May. Yes. Uh, and there was some other suspicious stuff, you know, Sam Trabuco, the, the co-CEO resigned in August, blah, blah, blah. But basically it looks like Alameda blew up and they lost about 10 to $12 billion. So there was a really good quote from DJ Spartan on, on Twitter, which I quite like, which basically says, like, they lost $12 billion with cheat codes on God mode. These guys didn't <laughs> qualify to operate a microwave. 
because it seems like everything was stacked in their favor and yet they you know they still managed to, to blow up that significantly but um let me try and answer your question then so yeah so was it was this fraud was it mismanagement that's that's kind of what i'm i guess what everyone's kind of asking at the moment i guess i guess it could be both as well as well though Callum. i think to a certain extent we'll come on to that yeah for sure so um that's Alameda blowing up, right? So they're, they're a kind of hedge fund. They're, you know, sat on the side. Why does that impact FTS? Like these two, FTX, these things should be entirely separate entities. But in reality, they were operating as a single company. So both were, you know, were owned and controlled by S- uh, SBF. A number of senior individuals had roles in both companies. So like the head of risk was the head of risk of both of those different companies. You know, you had all of this kind of, co-mingling of the top execs so SBF dating Caroline Ellison lots of the top execs from both companies like living in the same shared penthouse in in the Bahamas the offices being like literally yards apart and basically having an open door policy between them so whilst all this was going on like FTX was actually profitable they were making tens of millions of dollars of revenue a day and yet they went bankrupt owing customers you know 10 12 million dollars like how is that possible now this is where i think we start to get into the fraud versus incompetence type conversation yeah exchanges shouldn't operate on a fractional reserve model so what i mean by that is like customer deposits should be backed one-to-one with highly liquid assets uh ftx's terms of use were really explicit on this point they should not make or do not make use of customer funds even when like the whole ship was going down SBF was tweeting, which has since deleted, uh, that FTX didn't utilize customer funds. He, he, you know, he made very similar statements in front of Congress. Uh, yeah. He stated how this 2008-style banking contagion was not possible on FTX because you know something nebulous like transparent blockchain or whatever. But yeah. like this is all a big lie. Um, there were billions of dollars of customer funds from FTX that were being loaned to Alameda for Alameda to recklessly gamble with. And those funds come in the form of both fiat and crypto. So from a fiat perspective, uh, for a long time, like FTX, and and I think was true right to the end, FTX in the US didn't actually have a bank account. So think about that. If you're a a US customer depositing fiat into FTX, you weren't actually sending money to their bank account. What you were actually doing was sending money to a bank account owned and controlled by Alameda. $8 billion worth of US fiat customer deposits were made into an Alameda bank account rather than FTX, and they were never transferred to the FTX entity. So that's the fiat situation. From a crypto situation, it seems as though users uh, FTX customers' crypto holdings, which were held in like FTX wallets, were also being loaned out to Alameda. So, you know, if a customer has like one Bitcoin in her account, that one Bitcoin was loaned out to Alameda to gamble with. But in order to kind of balance the books from like sending that that one Bitcoin over, FTX would then take like one Bitcoin's worth of FTT from Alameda and have Alameda post that as collateral. But again, like if we consider that versus like what happens in the outside world, yeah. um, you know, an outside example would be something like Elon Musk borrowing money against his Tesla shares, which he has done. But in those instances, for every $1 that he borrows, he has to post like $5 worth of stock as collateral. Yeah. If the Tesla stock declines in price, like he has to post more. It, you know, he gets pulled on that. 
and he wasn't borrowing from a sister entity and like his Tesla stock has clearly got more intrinsic value than the FTT token. Yeah, it seems as though Alameda were collateralizing their highly illiquid token one-to-one with things like BTC, uh, BTC or US dollars or stable coins or whatever. So, you know, this explains why uh, as FTX was collapsing, customers were trying to withdraw money. They were unable to get that crypto from their accounts because it simply didn't exist. It had been passed over to Alameda and Alameda had gambled it all away. So, like... We can talk about how, you know, we'll, we'll definitely get into the fraud conversation, but I think you're starting to kind of get the picture. But like, there's no real clarity around like how long had this been going on? So it seems at least from the fiat perspective, this had been going on ever since FTX was formed in like May 2019. Um, it's a bit less clear how long FTX had been like actually loaning customers crypto assets to, uh, uh, to Alameda. But it certainly seems as though it's been happening for like at least over a year and that that practice got you know really accelerated in in May June 2020. I think the other the other incredible thing is that the brand was being amplified to its peak before it crashed. For sure. And everyone was on it. Everyone was engaged. All the political parties, all the major influencers were behind this. But no one was really looking under the bonnet in any way, shape, or form, and there was you know, that, independent. But I think that's like for me that that's kind of classic misdirection, and I think that's some of the most egregious stuff in here. So, like you're absolutely right. Like post the crash in May June, SBF starts you know talking openly to Forbes, talking about some second or third tier exchanges that are already likely insolvent. That applied to them at that point, and they were you know they were kind of hiding it, and they only went on like this crazy buying spree of like distressed CFI companies like Voyager and BlockFi, um, you know, and, and actually what they weren't doing is buying these guys or like funding them with, you know, assets of value. Yeah. Like they were basically like giving them FTT uh, and telling them that they needed to deposit their treasuries on FTX. So it gave, you know, more money into the FTX Alameda war chest. Um, and that made companies like even more vulnerable to what's happened in November and, you know, BlockFi's result is now in Chapter 11 bankruptcy, Voyager's fighting for survival. So he was presenting like this front of FTX, like, you know, responsible company have ridden out this storm of the crash of, you know, kind of May, June 2022. Uh, You know, he's telling the market, like, you know, we're we're basically hiring people whilst everybody else is laying off staff. But at the same time, he's kind of secretly hired this housemate's girlfriend and he's getting her to lay off significant numbers of employees but just telling them that they're not a culture fit but you know it's about them reducing their you know their wage bill so instead of just like taking uh taking alameda into to bankruptcy in june 2022 instead like he he doubled down on everything um and and basically allowed alameda to drag ftx and all of the ftx customer deposits and ftx investors down with it and it's really unclear to me, like, why he would do that. So that, you know, there's an element of me that thinks it's, you know, it's all about ego and, and hubris. And maybe there's an, you know, hoping like potentially that the market would recover, the hole would get filled, nobody would know about this stuff. Or maybe it was that actually the hole was already so big by June of this year, it was clear that they, you know, lost a bunch of, F, of FTX's customer funds that, you know, he almost felt like he had no choice at that point. Yeah. You know, I know. revealed. Exactly. And I think, I don't know if you've ever seen a film called Downfall. We, we mentioned Downfall early on with the, the classic meme with Bruno Gantz when he goes crazy when he realizes that the Russians really are there. 
Yeah. I mean, you've got a classic case here, a bunker mentality, right? Mm. It's got so bad, but just, just complete denial. No, agree. And it, you know, so we're kind of edging towards an answer to your question, Callum. And like, <laughs> yeah, don't worry, guys, take your time. Yeah, it's a, it's a, an amazing roller coaster of a story. <laughs> so, I mean, like, clearly, clearly the answer is like, it is fraud. Um, the, the question, another question that's interesting for me is like, well, how many people actually knew about it? So, Caroline Ellison, after the whole House of Cards collapsed, apparently told Alameda colleagues that, you know, certainly she, SBF, and a couple of other colleagues. Uh, that the CTO uh, and co-founder of FTX, a guy called Gary Wang, mm-hmm. uh, a sort of long-time childhood friend of, of SBF, who was the director of engineering uh, for Alameda, and then FTX, a guy called Nishad Singh, were aware of it, uh, the fact that FTX were using customer funds to, you know, to bail out Alameda. But, you know, according to that story, and certainly according to what SBF seems to be saying, is like, well, that, you know, those were the only people that knew. That, for me, feels barely credible um it, you know there, there are sort of reports that some other traders at alameda were aware yeah uh, and it's definitely suspicious that people like sam trabuco the former co-ceo of alameda brett harrison who was the president of ftx resigned suddenly in august and, and september uh respectively but like i cannot believe that your accounting your risk your compliance people wouldn't know about this type of stuff there seems to have been some speculation that, you know, SBF and, and you know, Gary Wang and, and Nishad Singh had basically built like a backdoor into FTX's systems so that these guys could kind of like circumvent all of the risk and compliance systems. Um, and, it, and it sort of seems that, you know, that entire company was kind of, you know, managed by a very tight knit group of SBF's housemates. So it may well be possible, but like, you know, it, it speaks to an incredibly... Uh, incompetent working environment that that was possible for you know for for that level of fraud to happen um, with you know so few people aware of it within within the company. But In- oh, sorry, go ahead. No, no, sorry, go on, go on, come. No, no, it was it was interesting. I just wanted to kind of dive into that mismanagement that you've 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 touched on there, and and how there was the possibility of of a backdoor. I know SBF has has come out and denied that, but I don't think anyone trusts anything that he's saying but um you've mentioned a few other examples of ways that the company was clearly being mismanaged in a way that you know a a traditional financial organization could never get away with you might be coming to that later and i don't want to interrupt your flow but i'd be curious to hear some more examples of that because i know there are a ton of others yeah no no absolutely so um I guess a couple of points. So, so one is that you know you, you talk about FTX, uh, sorry, SBF statements. Um, that seems to be kind of backed up by John Ray the Third, who's the the new CEO of FTX in Chapter Eleven, the Enron guy, right? Uh, that's it exactly. <laughs> He's very clear. You know, you shouldn't be believing anything that comes out of of SBF's mouth, and and certainly I don't. Um, you know, and, and whilst we're kind of like talking about the fraud before the mismanagement part, like in addition to all of that clear use of customer funds both fiat and crypto there's some other really dubious stuff in there so for example like uh, 121 million dollars worth of ftx funds that were used to fund the purchase of personal items like houses uh, for for sbf for his parents for you know other close advisors of uh, of the company and you know john john ray talks about um you know whilst sbf was kind of talking about FTX's crypto holdings having a value of $5.5 billion at the point at which they collapsed. His view was actually the fair value of that was like 0.01% of what, you know, what was being advertised. 
It, these are clearly things that sit in the, the realm of fraud. But but you're right. There is also an element, I think, of, of mismanagement. Um, and we'll kind of talk about the relationship between the two of those things, I think. But you, you, you again, right, you know, you alluded to, to, to John Ray III as being like the Enron guy. So he, he was in charge of restructuring Enron after it collapsed, um, you know, ahead of the, the 2008 crisis. Uh, yet he's still able to say about FTX that never in his career has he seen such a complete failure of corporate controls and such a complete absence of trustworthy financial information. That's pretty damning from anyone involved in Enron. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, yeah, it, exactly that. And he, and he after, once he took control of the company, he kind of issued a statement um, a few days or a week later. There was sort of like a summary of some of the horrors that he'd kind of uncovered as he started to look at the company in a bit more detail. So, for example, like none of the companies ever held board meetings. This is like a group of companies that were worth north of $40 billion. Uh, none of them had a functioning accounting department. Uh, if you wanted to uh, to submit expenses, you did that over chat uh, and the colleagues in HR or whatever that made the decisions whether to reimburse employees basically gave them like, you know, thumbs up, thumbs down emojis. Like that was the way of uh, of approving expense claims. And that seems to be true of like all decisions that were made in the in the company, like they were just made over chat. And those uh, those records in inverted commas were basically auto deleted after a period of time. So you've got no proper record management. You've got no cash management systems. It seems like they held they held totally improper employment records. So they can't even find some of the former employees that are supposed to have worked there. Customer deposits, like the the liabilities, the the stuff that they were loaning out to Alameda, doesn't even appear on the balance sheet. Like the just you know it's a, a tale of absolute horrors. Um, and the, the question is almost like, you know, was that partly deliberate or is it just like pure incompetence? So, for example, FTX uh, undertook a couple of, of audits, one for the, the international branch and one for the US branch. It's not clear why they undertook those audits as they're, you know, a private company. Uh, it, probably one of their investors had sort of said, like, you know, we wanted to see, you know, a better version of the books. But their choice of firms was really telling. So instead of going, you know, for a company of their size, instead of going to like the big four or whatever to get your your audit done, they went to some, you know, third, fourth tier companies that had quite a dubious record of spotting mismanagement uh, and, and went to them to get the uh, the audits done. And again, like John Ray the third states very clearly, like those audits shouldn't be trusted at all. And it wasn't just like that element of mismanagement in terms of like, you know, managing the company were even incredibly incompetent with how they managed their crypto assets. So for example, like an unsecured group email account was used to keep their crypto asset private keys, um, which probably tells you something about like how they managed to be hacked to the tune of like uh, $450 million at the point at which FTX was collapsing um, and before the new team could start to move those assets to cold storage. Uh, so SBS stated, you know, that he believes that the hack was conducted by an ex-employee. Well, that, that seems highly likely if you were keeping your private keys for customer assets sat in like a, an unsecured group email account that most people would have got access to. Um, and it, so it just seems like, the, you know, there's a, there's a whole range of kind of incompetence uh, from losing like millions of dollars transferring crypto assets to incorrect wallet addresses and paying like you know thousands of times over the odds for cloud storage and all of this type of stuff. So in, incredible incompetence. And 
the question almost is like, is this, you know, is this a, you know, question of fraud or, or mismanagement? For me, that feels like it's, it's obfuscation. And it's really clear in like SBF's subsequent communications, he's basically trying to pitch this as mismanagement. Yeah. Uh, this wasn't fraud. Like this is his, you know, get out of jail card. Uh, and I think it, you know, it's important to talk about like how incompetent they were, but we should never, never lose sight of the fact that this was fraud. Um, this what you know that the, there may be mismanagement as well, but the, the thing that he is guilty of is fraud. It's that that you know was was uh, that that resulted in the cost. Sorry, in the loss of customer funds or whatever. It, you know, it wasn't purely the the mismanagement element. But this, you know, so his defense is almost like well. We just kind of mislabeled some accounts. We lost tra- track of which tranche of funds belonged to who, or you know what what our assets versus our liabilities looked like, whether they were liquid or illiquid, yeah. you know, what the size of our losses, you know, blah blah blah. Like that's all obfuscation, but it seems to be working. You know what? He's he's not in jail. We're you know a month and a bit down the line. He's not in prison. He's not in custody. He's not been charged with anything. He's still appearing on like New York Times panels in mainstream interviews on on us tv last night you know i was kind of listening to him on on the twitter spaces or whatever um yeah sorry go on. no it's just neil hearing you talk about this and really tell the story it, it's not just and we can get into you know i'm curious to understand why why hasn't why haven't there been any any legal consequences for him yet or many legal consequences for him yet but the way that you describe the the business being run, I, I just can't believe that it was able to scale to the size that it did with 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 that level of of incompetence, seemingly at, at every single, you know, like every, every single stage. Who doesn't? What billion dollar company doesn't have an accounting department? Yeah, yeah, no, it's crazy. It's absolutely crazy. And what what seems even odder to me is that you know the there were a bunch of people who were incredibly sophisticated that were, or sorry, or supposed to be incredibly sophisticated that were investing in FTX and presumably did some level of due diligence into the company. So, you know, like guys like BlackRock and Sequoia, though, though the, the companies of that type of ilk were, uh, you know, were investing in, in, in FTX. I, yeah, like personally looking at it with the benefit of hindsight and all of that type of stuff, I, I totally agree with you. I mean, I think, Probably the only thing to say was that, you know, they were highly leveraged and operating in a bull market for the first two thirds, three quarters of their existence. And then as soon as they got into anything other than, you know, a kind of a market where everything was running up in a crazy fashion, then basically like the whole thing collapsed. So, um, you know, perhaps if they'd started in any other environment, they wouldn't have got off the ground um, because it, you know, it seems like they were top to bottom, both rotten and, and incompetent. I think SBF would have used the lobbying and the lobbying heritage that his family had quite effectively. And in the US, that's obviously going to give you a huge head start. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, like that part of the story is super interesting. We'll see how it pans out. Because I guess, you know, I, you know, I draw a lot of parallels probably with, with somebody like Bernie Madoff and, and SBF. So both of those guys, you know, at the point at which they started their criminal activities um both of them were, were pretty rich already they didn't need any more money this is all about kind of greed and, and hubris and as you say paddy like both of them tried to buy political influence so sbf for sure donated about 40 million dollars to democratic uh, the democratic party or democratic candidates 
his colleague Ryan Salome gave about 23 million to the Republicans. Nishad Singh, about 8 million to the Democrats. SBF is, I think, saying yesterday or today that he'd also donated money to, to Republican Party members as well. Um, so, that, you know, there's a heavy amount of trying to buy political influence. Uh, and both SBF and Madoff tried to shape regulation in, in some form or other. So we've already talked about uh, SBF and the DCCPA. Uh, Madoff did a similar type of thing. He was chair of the largest security commission in, in the US. He sat on advisory committees of the SEC, all whilst running you know, a, a major Ponzi scheme. The big difference for me is that Madoff was in custody within 28, oh, sorry, 24 hours of his Ponzi scheme collapsing. And it, it is a little odd to me why that same situation hasn't been applied to, to SBF. It may be because of the, you know, the, the kind of political influence that he wields. Uh, it may also because of, uh, be because of where he is sat. Um, so, you know, he, he lives out in the Bahamas. FTX International is headquartered there. It seems like he has been greasing some poles in the Bahamas as well. And certainly once FTX, uh, FTX was in the position of collapsing, he did some really dubious stuff like, allow people from the Bahamas itself, but nowhere else in the world to withdraw funds from, you know, from the dying exchange. And that wasn't ordered by the Bahamian authorities. Like he did that off his own bat. Mm. I think yesterday he was almost trying to say, well, you know, you would do the same thing if you were living in the Bahamas. You don't want to be surrounded by a bunch of people that have lost, you know, their their entire savings. So, you know, I did that to keep myself safe almost. Yeah. So maybe a combination of all of those things, but you know, I, I like to think that this will catch up with him at some point, and there will be, you know, a level of justice. Like there'll, there'll not be justice for people that have lost their money; that that will never be recovered, or it'll be cents on the dollar. But um, you know, I, I like to think that he will see a courtroom and and the inside of a jail cell because it's it seems pretty clear to me. So. I have never been one to believe deep state conspiracy theories. <laughs> uh, he says with a with an enormous but coming after that. But watching this this collapse unfurl in real time, and I noticed the you know he was allowing withdrawals for citizens of the Bahamas basically alone when it was collapsing. So I wondered whether okay maybe there's some corruption within the government of the Bahamas that wouldn't necessarily surprise me. But what has surprised me is seeing enormously influential and intelligent figures like Bill Ackman come out and publicly defend him. And I think, you know, Ackman will understand the investment world. He will have drawn presumably the same conclusions as you have, Neil and Paddy, by looking at the evidence. And for him to come out and say, you know, call me crazy, but I believe SBF just strikes me as, as bizarre. Um, as do the you know the New York Times puff pieces that have been written about him, but then I have no doubt that he has an excellent PR team. What isn't clear to me is how that that excellent PR team has kind of duped Ackman, if they have duped him, or whether there's something else going on here. Yeah, I, I, I agree. And Ackman's not the only one, right? Kevin O'Leary from you know Shark Tank in the US has come out and said not only that you know kind of similar sort of things like he but you know believes SBF, but he's also gone even further and said he would actually invest in him again, <laughs> which I find, you know, like staggering. Um, and, and I'm the same as you, right? I, you know, this, I kind of roll my eyes typically at this sort of, you know, deep state stuff. But it'll be interesting to see how this pans out because I think there's a lot of people in the political arena, you know, particularly in the Democratic Party that have been embarrassed by this situation and therefore might be motivated to try and brush some of this stuff under the carpet. And, and actually, that's probably true on both sides of the aisle. So, you know, we'll probably talk about 
regulation and and the impact um yeah. that this will have on regulation you know in, in a little while but you know for example i i understand that the sec in the us were investigating uh, ftx a few months ago but were basically asked or told to stand down by a bunch of cross-party um politicians in in congress and the senate who actually signed the letter uh to the sec saying like you know you need to kind of back off and it may be that they were thinking at the time that you know this is just another kind of gary gensler witch hunt uh against the industry um you know but subsequently they've they've maybe been highly embarrassed by that so i you know it, it may well be true that there is a bunch of you know kind of political angle to this i think the only other thing i'd say quickly is that um you know we're, we're all i guess in in this kind of virtual room fairly involved in the web3 crypto space on a daily basis um so to us like you know we know a lot about the situation the puff pieces all of that just seem absolutely crazy to us because we know about the subject yes that seems to be true to me of like any subject that i happen to know about when i see stuff written in the news almost always it'd be like you know actually that's not how it's really happening so i think there's this thing about the news where you don't really when you don't know much about about a subject actually it all seems perfectly reasonable to you when it turns out you know something about it, most of the, the you know the media stories that we read turn out to be total rubbish. And I'm told by you know kind of people on the outside of Web three that actually that they believe that you know he has been given a hard time and a grilling in some of these interviews and, and puff pieces uh, as we see them. So it may be just partly our perception, I guess, sat in this kind of Web three crypto bubble that we feel like he's been let off too lightly. So yeah. only time will tell, I guess. Our crypto ivory tower. Oh, crypto, well, not at the moment, my ivory towers. <laughs> no, oh, crypto, a uh, molehill. Exactly. So I, I appreciate we've got, you know, uh, there's, a, there's a, a load of uh, topics on this theme that, that I want to get through. So I guess just before we move into the kind of regulation piece and what this means for the crypto and Web3 industries as a whole, yeah. you know, why, why didn't we see this coming? <laughs> Good question. Um, I guess probably we weren't, we weren't looking so much. Um, but but it is you know it is a really good uh, it it is a good question. Um, sorry, just excuse me one second. No problem. Um, apologies, I somebody knocking at my door. Um, you know, to my knowledge, that there are very few people that have been calling SBF out publicly historically, and certainly not before the last couple of months when some of that self serving stuff in in DC started to come into focus. But, you know, there's a really good Twitter thread by Jesse Powell, who's the, the CEO of um, the exchange Kraken and, and has been in the crypto space for, for a long time. So he had this like list of things that we should have, you know, should have treated as red flags. So, you know, like SBF turning up, in his words, eight years late to the battle and but spending fine uh, and thinking that he knows everything. Yeah. Spending, like nine figures buying political favor being over eager to please DC, making these huge ego purchases of like, you know, Stadia and, and whatnot, uh, trying to be this like media darling and, you know, virtue signaling with his veganism and his effective altruism and giving his wealth away and all of that type of stuff. So, you know, th- there were all of these kind of red flags that we should have seen coming probably. Um, you know, for, for me, like the, the biggest red flag is the, the fact that he's got controlling interest uh, of a proprietary trading firm like Alameda and an exchange like FTX, and that clearly, you know, at least in retrospect, there were inappropriately close ties between the two. Yes, you know, and maybe we should have spotted all of that that thing, that type of thing coming. But as I said before, there were some people that, you know, were interacting with him on a daily basis. People who are 
you know, highly sophisticated, BlackRock, Sequoia, all of these, you know, even like pension funds, all of these guys were invest meeting with SBF and investing money in, in FTX. And it's not even just those people on the outside of, of crypto. You know, there's guys like Kobe, who's, you know, again, like an OG in this space who, uh, you know, interacted with SBF personally. So he was a, a sponsor of the Up Only podcast. Uh, and yet Kobe was kind of tweeting in early November that he felt like there's probably only a 1% chance of FTX going under. So I sort of, I feel like we need to, like as individuals almost cut ourselves a little bit of slack and yes. there were you know sophisticated people operating very close to him that didn't see this thing coming but i think there are some really useful lessons like going forward um you know that we really shouldn't be being swayed by like these personal images that people cultivate of themselves like you know the lovable nerd or whatever or the effective altruism um element of it as an yes. industry we, we've got to get a lot hotter on recognizing the signs and when people kind of show up and show who they are, like the first time, we should absolutely shame them and shut them out. And we shouldn't let people kind of back into this industry that have proven themselves to be bad actors. You know, we need to go back to that fundamental of, you know, of Web3 and crypto, like you don't trust, you, you verify, uh, you know, and we take action when, when we verified uh, that somebody's a bad actor. Like, I think it's... Neil, that's a brilliant point, because I think... There's so there are so many bad actors who re-enter and re-enter and re-enter, and they're re-entering at the same time as projects are absolutely plummeting and everyone else is losing. Yeah, no, and, completely. And that's so damaging for for this because you know it should be trustless. Yes, I agree, and I think that you know if we look at some of the other people that have caused massive crypto blow-ups this year, so you know Do Kwan of Terra Luna, um, you know, and the, the kind of algorithmic Ponzi that he was running, or Carl Davies and, and Suzu at Three Arrows Capital or Alex Mashinsky at, you know, of Celsius. These are all guys that have, you know, pretty much demonstrably done illegal things. Uh, and yet, you know, they're trying to pop back up on Twitter and it's almost like they're saying, oh, you know, at least we weren't as bad as SBF type thing. You know, yeah. I think it's really important. Like these guys have got to be shut out and shut down and never allowed to, to come back into the industry. And I think that's really challenging when, you know, it's such a nascent industry and it's quite cyclical. So you end up with people kind of, you know, new people coming into the, the industry every two to four years or whatever, but won't have seen these repeated patterns that yes. understand the history of, of these individual people. So I think it's incumbent on us that, you know, are, are spending longer and have got a greater history in, in crypto. Every time we see this stuff repeating itself, we need to like stamp on it and, you know, and and be really clear that like these people or these behaviors are, are not to be tolerated yes the only like issue for me in all of that is like i have a bit of an issue with kind of maximalism whether it's kind of bitcoin maximalism or, or whatever mm. and there's almost like this balance that you need to to tread because for, for me some of the bitcoin maximalists i just completely tune out now because it, it feels a bit like the boy that cried wolf so there needs to be a little bit of nuance, but I think it's incumbent on all of us, I guess, to you know to try and stamp this stuff out where we can. Well, that brings us on quite nicely, Neil, to the question of regulation. So, what could be done to ensure? You know, it's very well us saying, "Oh, we could, we should stamp this out as a community," but at the same time, you've you've said yourself that it's very difficult to. It would have been very difficult to to have seen this coming from an outsider's perspective, or indeed from the perspective of someone very close to SBF. So, you know, where were the regulators in in, in this whole debacle? That is an excellent question. Um, I, I, th I think in 
in general, it's difficult to generalize about all regulators, I guess, but it feels to me like there are some regulators, and I've taken as, as an example a lady called Hester Peirce from the SEC in, in the States, that feel like they're looking at this FDX debacle, collapse, whatever, in the right way. So, you know, she talks very clearly about this isn't a failure of crypto per se. In fact, almost it's kind of the opposite of that. FTX, like 2008 or whatever, was the failure of a centralized intermediary. And this is exactly why people should be looking at decentralized, trustless alternatives like DeFi. Um, like crypto is actually the antidote to the problems that we've seen with FTX and Alameda. Uh, you know, it provides transparency. Uh, it removes intermediaries. It removes, you know, the, the need for trust. So, you know, for her, actually, her interpretation was that uh, the, it's the failure to provide regulatory clarity uh, to the industry from people like, you know, the SEC in the, the US that's the problem. They've not created the clarity that would allow these decentralized, trustless alternatives to flourish. And therefore, we start to rely on centralized uh, parties that need to be trusted, who are fallible humans, and therefore things like this can happen. But I think there's another build on Neil's point here as well, Callum, which is this yes. hasn't been stress tested by the legal system and the regulatory system yet. Um, and it's we'll come on to the fact that actually it bears so many close parallels to the centralized world that should easily be able to be tested. But at the moment, because I think it's not as clearly understood as it needs to be, it's it's seen as some as a very different occurrence to what's happened in the past, whereas it actually isn't that different. Mm. However, it's going to need to go through that legal and regulatory stress testing, which is going to make um, make a lot of people a lot of money and, and probably be quite protracted over the next couple of years, I would expect. Yeah, no, I agree. And, and there are like good examples of jurisdictions that are being quite forward on, on that type of stuff. So, you know, I look at, Singapore, maybe the EU, um, with, with some of their new regulation, but it's you know maybe jurisdictions like the US that are lagging behind on this, and often regulating in the wrong way. So instead of regulating with providing upfront clarity, actually regulating retrospectively by enforcement, and I don't think that's at all helpful. But having said all of that, like it, it does appear that the SEC were investigating FTX earlier this year, as I said, but you know were basically asked to, you know, to back off. And I think maybe as a result of things like that, um, the regulators are trying to pick other battles. So, for example, like the SEC took on Ripple, who are another kind of centralized cryptocurrency. And I don't really have any particular views on 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 Ripple. Like I say, they're, they're not really crypto for me. It's, it's a very centralized organization. But that that battle trying to regulate those guys by enforcement has gone quite badly for the SEC. So like FTX would have done, Ripple had like a big war chest. And the SEC have been drawn into these really bruising court battles. So almost like as a result of, of things like that, you know, maybe politi uh, political pressure, maybe the challenge of beating, uh, you know, kind of big players in court, the SEC and other regulators have now started to develop this approach of going after smaller fish. And they're going after, in some instances, like the very thing that would solve these types of problems. So I know, you know, the SEC going after uh, non-custodial custodial decentralized exchanges like Uniswap or Shapeshift. Um, and these are the types of things that really we should be, per Hester Peirce, allowing to, allowing to flourish. And at the same time as all of this is going on, like them attacking the wrong targets in this space, 
you know, we'll see SBF, Caroline Ellison, all of those guys that we talked about before, they're all at liberty. They're all uncharged, having, you know, created this 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 debacle, this, you know, these crashes, this loss of billions of dollars to, you know, to, to kind of innocent customers. And at the same time, you've got a guy called Alexei Pertsov, I don't know whether you're familiar with, but basically he's been in custody in uh, in, in a Dutch jail since August. He will is now he be the there. Tornado Cash developer. Exactly. So this is a dude that is a, uh, you know, a, an open source developer uh, whose code was used to create Tornado Cash that just happened to be used by the North Korean state to launder some money from crypto hacks and was subsequently sanctioned by, by OFAC. That dude's been rotting in jail for like the best part of four or five months and will be there for another two or three months at least, whilst all of these other people uh, you know, are at liberty, whilst the regulators are going after Uniswap and Shapeshift and you know, these kind of decentralized alternatives. It just feels like the targets are wrong to me uh, and that you know, they, they don't have a kind of framework that allows for policing this space properly. I think yeah. there's another key element here as well around the lobbying. So they're obviously listening to the wrong people because there are those in the decentralized world who are actively lobbying in this space, but they're not being heard or not being heard as much. And I think this is the opportunity really for both the SEC and, and all the major regulators across the globe to actually start to work closely about understanding the difference between centralized finance and decentralized the decentralized world and how trustless that can be and, and how proportionate they need to be around how they need to deal with it. Yeah. Yeah, I like you know so you're right. There are guys like Brian Armstrong, for example, who is the the CEO founder of, of Coinbase, Jesse Powell from uh Kraken, who we've talked about, you know, a bit already. These guys are really clear, you know, they're operating um predominantly out of the US. And they're really clear that um it's this lack of regulatory clarity that's causing a real problem. So, for example, they, they kind of highlight that, you know, in their exchanges in the US, they're not able to provide in more innovative features like derivative products or whatever that people like FTX International were absolutely pushing. Um, and that, that's, you know, because of the regulatory uncertainty that they've got in their jurisdictions. But they're also clear that that's the type of product that customers want. Yes. And as a result of that, Apparently, 95% of all US crypto trading is now being done offshore. So instead of using, you know, kind of regulated onshore US entities, 95% of people trading in crypto are choosing to do that with, you know, offshore, potentially less regulated entities, simply because they want to use products that they are not allowed to use in the US because of this regulatory, uh, lack of regulatory clarity. So effectively, you're driving customers into potentially riskier options like FTX International, simply because you don't have that clarity from the regulator. And it, it was kind of interesting to me that, uh, you know, post uh, SBF, uh, you know, for all of the lying and everything, he started to get a bit candid like after... Um, after the whole for, for all of the lying and fraud. He's got redeeming features. Uh, that, that, that maybe it's the one redeeming feature, but <laughs> really interesting take on regulators because obviously been trying to cozy up as much as possible yes after that but like his, his candid view was like you know again excuse my language but like fuck regulators they make everything worse and they don't protect customers at all and yes. it's, it's kind of difficult looking from the outside uh in to to disagree with that point of view which is like which is a sad indictment i guess of their performance yeah yeah i completely i completely agree with you there um and it's a shame as well given you know, the tech talent that exists, certainly in the US, but also in the UK, 
and all the kind of hype I suppose that's come out of the government around making the UK obviously we're biased because we're all based here um, you know a center of web3 and yet there is still no regulation it's as you've said earlier it's all sort of uh, it's done unprecedented so in order to find out where the law sits you need to go to court uh, which is obviously not ideal for any business yeah. I mean I take uh, I, to, 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 to cut some slack to, to the regulators in fairness <laughs> there are you that trigger you Sorry, Fadi. <laughs> no, no, not at all. But I mean, I, I think there's a degree of prescription, but there's not necessarily the developed level of understanding for those who work in this, you know, fast-moving industry on a day-to-day basis. And I think that's always been the case, right? You know, crime is always ahead of prevention, particularly if it's sophisticated crime. So it's very, very difficult to to catch up, particularly when it takes quite a long time to make law and make rules, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So it's a whole whole ecosystem of law and regulation that, that that needs to spin faster. Or the alternative is that you have a much more principle-based approach, but with some true understanding of of where the risks are and what the harm to the market is and therefore what's proportionate. And I think that that's, that's where the, the lobbying needs to be more effective and the collaboration needs to be more effective so that it's balanced. Because what we don't want to do, and we talked about this last time, is having bad actors... Um, taking flight to a softer regime and therefore holding a huge amount of consumers in the market to to a massive disadvantage, um, you know, and that should be a red flag of itself. Yeah, no, I think I think that's fair, and I think you know, for, for me again, like I, I agree with Hester Peirce that you know what what we should be trying to regulate is the stuff that is regulatable. So if you've got something that's transparent, decentralized, peer to peer. Um, you know, there's no centralized entity at the heart of it. Like that probably should exist in a very light touch or no touch regulatory environment. And if you haven't provided that level of clarity up front, then probably what you should have is like some level of safe harbor um, situation where Web3 companies can within that space can innovate. And what you should be doing is like, you know, centralized, uh, sorry, regulating the centralized entities. And it's clear that, you know, some of the decentralized products, particularly in their nascent state, are not going to be for everybody. Like there'll be some people entering the industry using, you know, some of the tools and technologies that will gravitate towards centralized entities, at least initially before, you know, they kind of learn the ropes. So there will be a market for centralized intermediaries, fine. But if they're centralized centralized, uh, and therefore need to be trusted, you basically, that's where you should be focusing, you know, the regulation. So, you know, for, for me, again, we keep drawing parallels, I guess, to 2008, but there's a bunch of regulation that was kind of brought out post-2008. You know, I guess we'd look at the, the UK regulatory regime, but if you applied that to FTX, this situation wouldn't have happened. So, for example, um, SBF was, you know, was clearly running a proprietary trading business and an exchange alongside each other, and they were basically interacting as if they were a single company, loans, money passing between them sharing bank accounts, blah, blah, blah. That's, I mean, it's, it's worse, but it's kind of akin to the relationship between investment and retail banks ahead of you know the 2008 crisis. That resulted in a bunch of ring fencing legislation, which was designed to stop contagion passing from the riskier investment side and spreading to actual retail customers' actual deposits in their bank accounts. So, you know, we should be just applying the same rule set to, you know, the centralized crypto space. That's not a 
not a you know a, a difficult um, thing to do. Yeah, without a doubt. I mean, if you look at it from a just referencing that, so uh, changing banking for good report of the Parliamentary Commission on Banking Standards. I mean, that was issued post two thousand eight. If you applied all of that to what's actually happened in the space of FTS, you just wouldn't have. Well, for a start, they wouldn't have got off the ground. Yeah, by definition. Totally agree. And then I think you know, so again, like. like that, that same sort of model. So retail banks are allowed to operate a fractional reserve model. So what I mean by that is you don't have to have a one-to-one relationship between the amount of money that sits in your Callum bank account and some liquid reserves in hard assets kept by the bank. They're allowed to take your, you know, your your deposits, your savings, whatever, and they can then, you know, reuse that and put it in a mortgage product and lend that money to me, for example. But after 2008, banks were required to keep greater reserves and they're subject to periodic stress testing. Yes. I'm saying in, in the crypto world and, and guys like, you know, CZ to his credit to Jesse Powell, Brian Armstrong saying the same thing. Like those rules should be much more stringent for crypto exchanges. So cu- customer deposits, customer deposits should be fully offset with liquid assets at all times. Uh, and those should be subject to kind of periodic, like every couple of months, every quarter full proof of reserves like merkle tree proof where you know you prove the assets that you've got on hand you prove your liabilities and you prove that you're solvent um you know again as like as individual users we've maybe got a part to play in this if the regulators aren't going to step in and make that that law you know yeah. we should be gravitating to exchanges that you know provide that proof if your exchange doesn't provide that proof don't bloody use them yeah. um you know and, and maybe you know we should I think it was Antonopoulos that, that described it in this way, but we should use exchanges as like public bathrooms. You get in, you do your business, you know, you, you make your trade and you get out, you take your assets back to cold storage. Yes. We need to start thinking, you know, the regulator needs to act. And in the absence of that, we need to, uh, you know, we need to, we need to do an element of policing ourselves. Yeah. I'd like to know what trades you're making in public bathrooms, Neil, but maybe that's a story for another time. Um, I'll that very badly. You can, you can edit that out, can't you? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I can. <laughs> um, I will send you some FTT. Give me a uh, okay. Oh, done. Done. Um, well, speaking, speaking about FTT, so I appreciate we, this has been a, a long episode, but there's still, I think, uh, an important question that we need to, we need to raise. So... What does the collapse of FTT and the kind of house of cards that having an exchange token has created say about the tens of thousands of other tokens and coins on the market? You know, are they all scams? Are they all going to go to zero? Is there such a thing as a future tokenized world? You know, how do, how do you go about giving a token value? So to their total asset holdings. The remainder were sat in, in two tranches, one that they called semi-liquid assets. So mm-hmm. this was about 5.35 billion. And these were tokens like FTT. So things with like low market caps, low circulating supplies, huge fully diluted values, and some of which were, you know, were actually locked tokens. And then 3.2 billion that they listed as like illiquid assets. So already, even when we look at that, they would struggle to survive a run on the bank because they've got, you know, only 10% of their assets are actually held in, you know, in kind of liquid assets. So if 20 or 30% of customers come to try and withdraw their their funds, you know, they're in trouble. And there were two really big problems with the semi-liquid assets, you know, a bit like FTT, that actually they weren't semi-liquid was the first one. So, you know, if you actually wanted to try and sell FTT, 
um, the demand for it was so low that it'd be near impossible to sell without you know totally crashing the price. Uh, and at the same time, like the value was vastly inflated. So you know when you did try to sell, you know you wouldn't get that you know that price for it. Um, so FTT was like one of a host of different uh, semi-liquid assets as they listed them. Uh, but which were actually kind of semi, uh, sorry, it, it very illiquid low cap coins. Um, if you look at like the total holdings, that kind of five point three five billion, uh, what's the percentage? Almost like forty percent of it was made up of a token called Serum. So Serum was basically a token that was built on the Solana ecosystem. FTX were huge early investors, as were uh, Alameda and in, in the Solana ecosystem. They incubated uh, Solana devs and some Solana projects in their Bahamas offices. Like they were, they were very kind of connected into that ecosystem. Yeah. And as a result, like they took a, a, a outsized numbers or outsized returns on these, sorry, outsized portions of these low cap coins when they launched. So Serum was one, Maps was another, Oxygen another, Bonfida. They held a whole load of these. Yeah. So when you look at the semi-liquid assets, like 40% of them were made up by this token called Serum. So that's mm. like four times the holdings that FTX had in, in FTT. Um, mm. At the same time, uh, as FTX was suggesting that these Serum assets were worth like 2.1 billion, the total market cap of that, of the circulating supply of Serum was like $88 million. So effectively, like the value that they were suggesting on their balance sheet of that serum asset was probably actually just four percent of what they were claiming so they, they were doing the same thing with all of these low cap tokens it wasn't just like a pure ftt problem there were bigger problems sorry other problems alongside that ftt issue that were you know causing them to be under collateralized and you know kind of uh, vulnerable to um to a run on the bank cutting yeah. to your your question what it looks like uh they did with ftt was they would create the token like FTT or they'd co-develop a token like Serum or whatever. Uh, and they would lead the early rounds through Alameda. Alameda would require a load of these tokens at a very low value. They'd list it on FTX. They would try and pump the price. If they're able to pump the price, Alameda would then dump it on retail buyers if they could. If they couldn't do that because the token wasn't vested, they then kind of enacted this playbook of Alameda would post the token as collateral and borrow the real assets that we've talked about from, from FTX and they gamble with those assets. Mm. Uh, you know, so this was kind of a playbook that they ran with FTT, but they also ran it with a whole bunch of, of kind of low cap tokens. Um, mm. Some of this stuff was kind of evident in the market. Like, you know, some people sort of saw it coming. I know like in late 2021, Kobe created a, a blog post where he was, he was really talking about the definitions of market cap versus fully diluted value and talking about how you should better value tokens. Yes. But the full commentator on his post listed the six tokens that had the lowest market cap to FDV ratio. So effectively had um, you know, a low circulating supply and the tokens had a very high value, but the remaining, you know, su the remaining supply was enormous and vested and locked or not able to be, to be traded. So, yeah. you know, investment in those tokens, probably not a good idea. And the, the the kind of rank order, you had Serum that was ranked number one, Oxy was ranked number two, Bonfida number four. These were all the tokens that FTX and, and Alameda were holding on their balance sheet. So, you know, it was a complete house of cards. 
FTT being a component of it, but you know, a whole bunch of these other low cap coins as well. It's super, super interesting. I, um, I guess, yeah. I, so just to cutting to the chase, I suppose, Carl, sorry. Uh, I, no I guess that your question is, are all of these tokens inherently bad, like exchange tokens, for example? Yeah. Um, I think the answer to that is no. I think Eric Voorhees has got a really good view on this where he says that there's nothing inherently wrong with exchanges creating their own tokens. And I agree, as long as they're super clear about how it works, how it's issued, what the tokenomics are. Um, and all of that information was kind of clear to, to, to any investors that cared to look closely enough at it. Um, what probably wasn't public information was that even though this thing was kind of highly centralized, it wasn't necessarily clear that things like FTT, 73% of the, the entire supply sat with Alameda. It was known that they were you know, highly centralized, but I don't think it was known that you had that systemic risk of uh, a sister company of FTX kind of holding the entire supply. And people certainly didn't know that they were using that as collateral against loans of, uh, you know, of customer deposits. Um, so for me, the core issues are basically Alameda using things like FTT as collateral against loans. That's kind of the problem. It's like an airline borrowing dollars against its loyalty points. Um, you know, it's, it's kind of highly dubious slash illegal when you do that between two sister companies. And it's certainly illegal if, if the thing that you're loaning is customer funds without those customers' permission. And, you know, clearly FTX, uh, SBF knew they were doing this. SBF was pumping FTT on Twitter every week. He was posting like the top orders, trying to showcase how much FTT was being bought back and burnt by FTX. He was clearly trying to kind of keep the value high, keep that whole house of cards intact. In um, that's, but that's actually, but that's actually a, 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 a great point because that's a classic playbook, isn't it? He was taking all of the best tools that you would in terms of promotion and amalgamating them and people were going, yeah, this is great, right? And getting right behind it because he was on top of everything. Mm. Yeah, no, I agree. But, you know, again, coming back to that idea of like, are in exchange tokens inherently bad? Um, Voorhees, again, points to actually an example of how exchange tokens have been re used really well. So in 2016, uh, hackers stole like 120,000 Bitcoin from the, the Bitfinex exchange. So Bitfinex, in response to that, created and released tokens that effectively served as IOUs to any customers that have been affected. And that meant that both the exchange could stay afloat and that as the market recovered, users could be made whole. And that happened within like eight months of the, of the hack. But contrast that, for example, with like victims of the Mt. Gox hack in 2014, where users still haven't been made whole and were, you know, kind of eight, nine years later. So, you know, there are examples of where uh, exchange tokens could be used well. It's really just a case of, you know, making sure that the tokenomics, the issuance, all of that stuff is clear above board and that users know what they're what they're getting into if they buy it hmm. yeah that's i i think that's a a really nice note to to sort of end on so you still see the future being bright for the web3 space then it just yeah. needs to be done in the right way i do yeah i mean i think um there are lots of tokens clearly that are are basically worthless and that will trend towards zero but there are i, th I think like the future of tokenization in, in general is is bright um you know I, I, again another person i look to on this stuff is is a chap called punk 6529 
um, people who are active in the space, you can go and follow his stuff on, on Twitter. He, he has pretty good frameworks for thinking about this type of stuff. And, uh, you know, he's talking primarily about NFTs because that's kind of where his focus is. But um, he has a couple of quite useful frameworks for thinking about, um, you know, use cases for, for tokens. So one of his is, is around a transportation or evaluation technology for, for intangible assets. So as an example, like there are $77 trillion worth of intangible assets on the books of publicly listed companies. Um, and that's just a subsection of the world's intangible assets. Uh, and when we're talking about intangible assets, it's like, you know, what's the value of, for example, like the Statue of Liberty? You could look at the raw materials that go into it, the, the value of the sculpture itself, the land on which it sits. But all of the intangible stuff is like the ideals that it stands for. The US as a welcoming place for immigrants or being a land of opportunity, the idea of the American dream. Like th there's, there is enormous amount of value that is sitting on and off um, balance sheets that relate to those intangible assets. Wouldn't it be great if you could kind of tokenize all or parts of that and that you could trade those tokens on the market and the total market cap would give investors a much more accurate understanding of the actual value of a brand? Well, you can do that and you can do that with NFTs and companies are starting to explore that. You know, guys like Adidas or Nike or whatever who are kind of selling digital wares as NFT collections are starting to explore that kind of, um, you know, those as a vehicle for their their intangible assets. And even from an institutional level, we had yesterday sort of Larry Fink, BlackRock CEO, saying next generation markets is tokenization, right? Mm. Agree. I, you know, I, I totally agree with that. And, you know, we've not even really started talking about, uh, sorry, tokenizing kind of tangible, non-functional things. Like most of the world that we exist in is tangible and non-functional. Uh, sorry, non-fungible. Um, you know, Kobe's view, and again, I agree with this, is like this is the way of onboarding the next billion users. There's yeah. massive scope for tokenizing real world assets. Uh, you know, we've started to see people dip their toe into to that water with, you know, tokenizing digital art or music or concert tickets or tokenizing communities that organize using, um, you know, token gating NFTs to get into the communities or using uh, ERC20 type tokens for, for, for part of their governance, how you vote, make decisions, etc. So I think over time you will see the tokenization of all of these kind of, you know, real world assets. So Paddy and I, as an example, are you know looking at this in a number of different ways. But um, we, we've just kind of closed uh, our first angel round on a wine and spirits platform economy, which we we use Web three to power. I'm not going to like I won't give the secret source away, obviously, but you know there's a bunch of stuff that we a bunch of value that we believe can be released by tokenizing those types of real world assets. So. You know, at the most trite level, you can provide irrefutable provenance. You can remove fakes and forgeries from the market. Mm. You can genuinely differentiate between sustainable and less sustainable products. You can allow producers to capture a share of the very lucrative, lucrative secondary markets. You can use them to create and curate incentivized communities centered around a particular producer. You can remove the intermediaries that exist within the industry interact directly with consumers you can create greater loyalty you know and you can use that disintermediation to reduce prices or create more relevant products like there's, there's a world of value that you can release by tokenizing these types of real world assets yeah. and i think like to, to close off almost like the way that we've been thinking about releasing these types of tokenized products 
um, has probably changed a little bit as a result of this FTX debacle. So if I look at something like Reddit, for example, these guys have managed to sell 3 million NFTs to a community of people that claim to hate NFTs. Yeah. They did that by rebranding them as digital collectibles and offering them a really intuitive wallet or custody service. Actually, you know, the way that we're thinking about this now is that it's super important that people understand that they're interacting with Web3 and that they get educated in this space. So instead of, you know, kind of, rebranding an NFT as a digital asset, I think it's important to call an NFT an NFT. And rather than providing, you know, a kind of web two type of custodied experience for those those NFTs, it's important to get people used to custodying uh, their assets themselves. That will undoubtedly cause us some friction. It will, it will make it more difficult to onboard people into this world. Um, but if we're able to do that, you know, the people that enter the ecosystem will be much better prepared to avoid things like FTX in the future, to be in a position where they custody their own coins, where they're, you know, they're, they're kind of interested in the transparent and immutable nature of the blockchain, uh, blockchain, where they don't trust people, where they always verify. So yeah. it's kind of really important, uh, particularly as a result of FTX, to, to kind of operate in that way going forward. I love it. That's a, um, I think, a, a real vision of hope for the future. So thank you, Neil. I. I hesitate to ask, given this has been by far the longest discussion that we've had on one of these podcast episodes, but is there anything that we've missed? Uh, we didn't talk about the orgies. <sighs> we always forget the orgies. Yeah. Sorry, I, I take this back. This is the second longest podcast episode uh, that, that we'll have on this pod. The, the number one longest will, of course, be the breakdown of the orgies. Um, <laughs> but... <laughs> But Neil, Paddy, thank you so much for your time. That was incredibly insightful at a at an incredible juncture as well, I think, in the in the Web3 and crypto ecosystem. Um, so thank you so much and best of luck with the new project. It sounds like a, a an exciting one. No problem. Thanks a lot. A huge thank you to what can only be called two stalwarts of the show, Neil Rushton-King and Paddy Vance, for that incredible take on FTX's demise. To check out the show notes, see upcoming guests, and listen to more episodes of Europe's most popular Web3 podcast, believe it or not, you can find us at www.theweb3podcast.xyz. If you want to get in touch with me, you can find me on Twitter. My handle is at Callum Wooders. That's Callum with two L's. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please, please, please leave us a review, whether that's on Spotify, Amazon, Apple. It really does make a difference. This has been the Web3 podcast. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you next time.